You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective. Tom Dunbar went to Montana hoping to luck upon his fortune. He anticipated that luck would look like a glimmer, a glint, a fleck of gold in a prospecting pan. But that sort of luck had already well and truly run its course in the area by the time our story begins, in the 1890s. The Montana gold that had been discovered there in the 1860s, which had driven so many to come in search of lucky fortunes, which had created political tumult and vigilante justice, had mostly dried out. And a new gold rush, the Klondike Gold Rush, in the far northern Yukon, near what would eventually become the border between Canada and Alaska, had stolen away most of the dreamers and schemers, the greedy and the desperate, the ones who believed their fortunes to be but a lucky strike away. But not Tom Dunbar. He was a dance-with-the-girl-what-brought-you type, that girl being Montana, and what a beauty she was. He couldn't help but be awed, continually awed, by the majesty of the countryside around him, the rolling hills of scrubland with their pronghorn sheep, the mountains crashing upwards in the distance, the sky, which spread out in every direction and then some, impossibly large, like it had discovered a hidden dimension to expand through. I know that Tom Dunbar was awed, continually awed, by the majesty of the countryside, only because everyone to ever live in Montana has been. Tom Dunbar didn't leave any specific thoughts on said majesty, or at least if he did, I haven't seen them. I don't know when he came to Montana, or where he came from, or where he might have gone after. Honestly, I'm not even entirely sure that Tom Dunbar existed at all. But if he did, then there is a short list of things I can say about him. That he lived in Montana when the other prospectors left for the Yukon. That he was awed, continually awed, by the majesty of the countryside. That he hoped to luck upon his fortune, in the form of a glimmering, glinting fleck of gold in his prospecting pan. And that he found it another way instead. One morning, in 1897, he was out with said prospecting pan, hoping for the glint, on the banks of the Missouri River, just a wee bit south of Fort Benton when he was awed, we can assume, given that he was awed so continually, by the countryside, what with its majesty and all. The Missouri was low that day, and as his awestruck face scanned the horizon, it paused upon something stuck out of the water, half buried in sand. At a glance, it must have looked like a body, the body of a man. But a second look showed it was a stone. A third confirmed that both were true, that, incredibly... Tom Dunbar had lucked upon a man petrified, turned to stone, his fortune. He had no way of transporting it, so he waded into the river, tied a rope around its waist, and dragged it away from shore, where he reburied it in the sand, all the way this time, and marked its place for his return. 
He came back with a wagon a year and a half later, loaded the petrified man on board, and hauled him off to Yellowstone, where he charged tourists to look at him. Tom Dunbar's petrified man began attracting attention from local reporters, from local officials, and from local entrepreneurs, who were sometimes all one and the same. In September of 1899, Tom Dunbar sold his petrified man to the owner of a lumberyard and general store named Arthur Wellington Miles, who then took the petrified man on tour around the western part of the state. A petrified man, found by a prospector in the Missouri River, is already a fantastic story. But in December of 1899, it took on a whole new aspect. In that month, the body was being displayed in Butte, Montana, when it was visited by an old miner who, remarkably, identified it. It is the general! God rest his soul, it is the general! The old man yelled. When asked who he meant, he excitedly and loudly clarified, General Marr, surely! If that is not the hand of Thomas Francis Marr, may mine be withered! It must have seemed suddenly obvious to Arthur Miles and any other Montanan within earshot. Why was the body laid out so straight as in repose? Why were his hands tied together in front of his chest with rope likewise petrified? Why did he have a hole in his head as if he'd been shot? And why would a petrified corpse be found all of the sudden in the silt of the Missouri River just south of Fort Benton? All of that made spontaneous sense the second the old miner said his name. Tom Dunbar hadn't just discovered an anonymous anomaly, some fossilized caveman or the like. He'd looked upon something even more fortuitous than he'd realized. The body of a revolutionary, an escaped convict, a celebrity speaker, a war hero, and Montana's territorial governor, who disappeared under mysterious circumstances more than 30 years previous. General Thomas Francis Marr. This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Today's episode, Men of Stone, Part 1. Even if Thomas Francis Marr's story didn't end up with him as a petrified statue, which I might as well say now, is a more than distinct possibility, it'd still be among the more cinematic biographies in 19th century history. He was born on August 3rd, 1823, in Waterford City, Ireland. He was at least the third generation of Thomas's Marr, his father, Thomas Marr, was mayor of Waterford at the time of his birth and later became a member of Parliament. Thomas Marr had inherited both his name and a successful trading business from his father, also named Thomas Marr, who had lucked into his fortune trading cod and clothing back and forth between Newfoundland and Ireland. Thomas Francis was trained at Clongo's Wood College, a Jesuit boarding school in County Kildare, the eventual setting of Joyce's A Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man. It was here that Marr first showed his greatest and most persistent talent, the gift of gab, winning medals at the school's debate society when he was just 15. After a few years, he moved to Stonyhurst College, another Jesuit school in English Lancashire, where his teachers worked to chip away his Irish accent. He graduated in 1843 
and returned to Ireland, where he was quickly radicalized into the Irish repeal movement, which sought to undo the Acts of Union and restore Ireland as an independent and formally Catholic country. In 1846, the repeal movement splintered between the older members who thought they could compromise with the British government and the more zealous upstarts who disagreed. That second group came to be called the Young Irelanders, and Thomas Francis Marr rose instantly to their highest ranks. In January of 1847, he and some of the other Young Irelanders formed the Irish Confederation with the stated goal of an independent Irish nation. They didn't expressly advocate for violent rebellion, but came pretty darn close, saying that they wouldn't rule out any means to their end, quote, save such as were inconsistent with honor, morality, and reason. Not coincidentally, all of this political posturing took place right at the height of the Great Hunger, otherwise known as the Irish Potato Famine. In 1845, the British government had passed a series of tariffs, known as the Corn Laws, which made it prohibitively expensive for Ireland to sell corn, grain, or wheat, moving the nation almost entirely over to the potato. Then a blight hit, killing off more than half this crop. To make matters worse, most Irish farmland was owned by absentee Protestant landlords, the majority of them British, who insisted on selling what crops there were to England until a profit had been made leaving the poor Irish Catholics who worked the land in even more desperate conditions. More than a million died in the famine, and several more million fled the country, leading to the first major Irish emigration to America. It also led to a hardening of the position of the Irish Confederation. 1847 was the worst year of the hunger, and came to be known as Black 47. But the next year got a nickname too, the Springtime of the Peoples. In February of 1848, the Second Republic deposed King Louis-Philippe in France. That revolution was quickly followed by similar ones throughout Europe. By the end of the year, there were new democratic governments in France, the Netherlands, Italy, Austria, and Germany, most of which were quickly cut down or driven into exile, but hey, it was worth a shot. Thomas Francis Marr, along with fellow Confederate William Smith O'Brien, traveled to France to study the Second Revolution and came back in 1848 with a flag gifted to them by the French. It looked, in fact, quite a lot like the tricolor flag of the French Republic, but with different colors. The French flag had stripes of red, white, and blue, but the flag Mar brought to Dublin replaced them, with ones symbolizing the Irish Catholics on one end, Irish Protestants on the other, and a hope for lasting peace between them. Green, white, and orange. Marr had brought the flag of Ireland back from France, but William Smith O'Brien had brought the plan. He began working to unite the poor Catholic tenants with their better-off but still restricted Protestant landlords in hopes that they could gain independence together without bloodshed. But on July 22, 1848, the government suspended habeas corpus in order to freely arrest and execute the young Irelanders. So, the next day, O'Brien's plan was amended. O'Brien, Marr, and John Blake Dillon traveled west, marching for six days and calling for rebellion everywhere they passed. On July 28th, O'Brien erected barricades near the commons in County Tipperary to prevent his arrest. The police soon arrived on the scene and, seeing the barricades, decided not to chance it. They ran to County Kilkenny to the east, pursued by angry rebels. 
The police broke into a large farmhouse owned by a widow named Margaret McCormick, where they took five children hostage and dug in for a fight. O'Brien tried to negotiate a peace, telling the cops, we are all Irishmen, give up your guns and you're free to go. He shook hands with a few of the officers, but just as things were looking hunky-dory, somebody fired, and the battle of Widow McCormick's cabbage plot began. Only a small number of rebels were killed in the ensuing gunfire, and none of the police, but the battle nevertheless changed the tide of Irish politics. The police supposedly numbered in the thousands, and the farmhouse proved an impregnable defensive position. Worse still, they were soon joined by another regiment of cops who came marching up the road, flanking the rebels who were by that time short on ammo. The Confederates scattered. The Young Ireland movement dissolved, and in a short time, warrants were issued for nine of its leaders. Two of them fled to France, don't worry, we'll get back to them, while the other seven were arrested and tried for sedition, including Thomas Francis Marr. Being the group's best orator, Marr was the one who did most of the talking for the men. He gave a rousing speech in which he said, I am here to speak the truth, whatever it may cost. I am here to regret nothing I have ever done, to retract nothing I have ever said. I am here to crave with no lying lip the life I consecrate to the liberty of my country. Far from it. Even here, here where the thief, the libertine, the murderer have left their footprints in the dust, here on this spot where the shadow of death surrounds me and from which I see my early grave in an unanointed soil open to receive me, even here, encircled by these terrors, that hope which first beckoned me to the perilous sea on which I have been wrecked still consoles, animates, and enraptures me. No, I do not despair of my poor old country, her peace, her liberty, her glory. For that country, I can do no more than bid her hope, to lift this island up, make her a benefactor to humanity, instead of being as she is now, the meanest beggar in the world to restore to her her native powers and her ancient constitution. That has been my ambition, and this ambition has been my crime. They were found guilty, as Marr expected. Before passing sentence, the judge asked if they had anything else to say, to which Marr perhaps apocryphally responded, My lord, this is our first offense, but not our last. If you will be easy with us this once, we promise, on our word as gentlemen, to try to do better next time. And next time, sure we won't be fools to get caught. They were sentenced to be hung by the neck and drawn and quartered. But public sentiment, both local and abroad, was too strongly in their favor, swayed in part by Mars fierce and righteous rhetoric, and so Queen Victoria intervened commuting their death sentences, and having the seven young Irelanders instead transported away to Tasmania forever. Or for a few years, anyway. Oh boy, have I got a podcast recommendation for you. American Hysteria is a podcast that explores moral panics, conspiracy theories, urban legends, and fantastical thinking and how they have shaped our culture and politics from the Puritans to the present. Over the years, American Hysteria has covered topics like stranger danger, satanic cults, mind control, true crime, much like us televangelists, uh, and a lot of medical quackery. 
Host Chelsea Weber-Smith takes you down strange American wormholes presenting forgotten riddles of history and popular culture. You may remember Chelsea uh, as guesting on the fifth part of the Fool Killer series a long while ago, and I will say that on the few occasions where Chelsea and I have been in a physical space together, I have clung to them like a baby gorilla <laughs> because they get me and I think you will love the show. Sometimes horrifying, sometimes hilarious, sometimes heartfelt, American Hysteria seeks to understand why humans fear the wrong things and believe in false realities and what these distractions are really covering up. So, subscribe to American Hysteria now, wherever you get your podcasts. The second act of Thomas Francis Marr's life began when he arrived on Tasmania, then known as Van Diemen's Land, on October 17, 1849. He and the other transported young Irelanders were separated and sent to different parts of the island, with Marr landing in Campbelltown. All of them were offered tickets of leave, which served both as work papers and parole placements. Marr, for instance, couldn't leave Campbelltown without getting government permission on his ticket, without which he would be unable to find employment or receive rations from the state or charity. William Smith O'Brien refused his ticket, and so was sent to a harsh penal colony on Maria Island. Marr found Campbelltown too small and too sodden with police, but not long after he arrived, he discovered things could get worse. He was moved to another, even smaller village called Ross, which he described as a little apology of a town, which is a phrase I shall be folding up and placing gingerly in my back pocket for later, thank you very much. Ross wasn't all bad, though. He became close friends with an Irish Catholic priest there, and even better, met a woman, Catherine Bennett, with whom he was married in 1851. He received authorization to attend his own honeymoon at Lake Sorrel, and realized it would be the perfect place to start violating his parole by meeting with his fellow political prisoners. In 1874, Charles Duffy was elected Prime Minister of the Victoria Colony in Australia. Word of his election was sent back to Queen Victoria, who said, Wait a second. Charles Duffy? Surely not the Charles Duffy who I sent to Tasmania 25 years ago, right? But indeed it was. So Queen Victoria asked her officers to figure out what had happened to the other six young Irelanders she had supposedly imprisoned on the island. The results of this inquiry must have infuriated the Queen. Every last one of them had escaped the island, and a bunch of them had done quite well for themselves, too. Richard O'Gorman was a New York lawyer at the time Victoria started asking around and would soon be elected judge of the Superior Court. Thomas Darcy McGee was Canada's Minister of Agriculture, John Mitchell the editor of the New York Daily News, and Thomas Francis Marr, well, he'd still got two more acts to go. Why Marr felt he had to escape Tasmania in January of 1852 is really puzzling to consider. He had come to enjoy his life there, and his new wife was pregnant at the time, too pregnant to accompany him. My best guess is that the wheels of his prison break had started rolling a long while before she came to be with child, maybe even before the two were married, and that the process had too much inertia to stop. That process had some real Great Escape vibes. 
First, the young Irelanders had to be surreptitiously transported one by one 80 miles from Hobart to the town of Westbury, where they were then hidden in the cellar of a church where they were kept until the coast was clear. At that point, they were taken to a couple of local fishermen, James and William Barrett, who rowed them in a small boat up the Tamar River into the open ocean and 40 miles out to sea to land at the nearly unpopulated Waterhouse Island. The Irelanders would wait, then, until a sailing ship, whose captain had been bribed to take them, arrived. When Thomas Francis Marr made the trip, the rowboat was just 10 minutes too late, and so he had to be brought back to Tasmania, disguised as an elderly woman, and driven by stagecoach back to the start. When the Barrett brothers finally got him to Waterhouse Island, he was stuck there for 10 days, before the Elizabeth Thompson picked him up. Marr finally reached his destination in May of 1852, New York City. He was given a hero's welcome by the many Irish immigrants who had fled the hunger. But he also learned that his son, Henry Emmett, had already been born, lived, and died in the time it took him to reach Manhattan. Catherine left Hobart to join her husband after receiving word from him in February of 1853, but by the time she made it, she was sick from her journey and soon left for Ireland, where the Mars hoped she would convalesce under her father-in-law's well-to-do care. Instead, she died in May of 1854, just 22 years old, after giving birth to their second-born son, the fourth generation of Thomas Mars, who Thomas Francis would never meet. For the rest of the decade, Thomas Francis Marr distinguished himself as a lawyer, a publisher, and most of all, a speaker, mainly in defense of the now dormant Irish cause. In 1858, he traveled to Costa Rica to see if it might make a suitable country for Irish emigres, and wrote about his experience there for Harper's Magazine. And then, it was time for Act 3 of Marr's life, the Civil War. A lot of Marr's personal and professional life up until the outbreak of the Civil War had been spent with John Mitchell, fellow Young Irelander, Tasmania escapee, and the eventual editor of the New York Daily News. Mitchell and Marr together published a weekly newspaper of their own with a decidedly pro-Irish bent called Citizen. Even for his time, John Mitchell was breathtakingly pro-slavery. He wrote to John Kenyon to say that he wished to make the American people not just accepting of slavery, but proud of it as a great, quote, national institution. The remaining Irish Confederation in Dublin did everything they could to distance themselves from Mitchell, as the British press were trying to tie the whole Young Ireland movement up with Mitchell's abhorrent views. As the people of New York, including its Irish population, turned away from Mitchell, he continued to double down on his beliefs, all the while his friend, Thomas Marr, kept mostly quiet. Marr had lectured in the South and reportedly respected the people he met there, not least of which the many Irish. He didn't have much to say about slavery, at least not from what I can find. But when the Confederates attacked Fort Sumter, that all changed and Marr's friendship with Mitchell dissolved. 
Mitchell didn't just support the attack. His son John had been among the attackers. With war declared, Mitchell left New York for Richmond, Virginia, where he became editor of the Daily Inquirer, the black-and-white paper mouthpiece of Confederate President Jefferson Davis. Marr went the other way, traveling throughout the North, encouraging the Irish to fight for the Union. He filled up a whole company this way and took command of that company for New York's Fighting 69th. After a hard-fought loss at the Battle of Bull Run, Marr was promoted to colonel and put in charge of finding more Irish recruits. He succeeded with flying colors. New York's entire 69th Infantry Division became known as the Irish Brigade, and when they took to the field in 1862, Marr was commissioned their Brigadier General. With his Irish Brigade, Marr won the Battle of Fair Oaks, and then helped General George McClellan lead an ultimately unsuccessful march on Richmond. The Irish Brigade was particularly hard hit during the Battle of Antietam, the bloodiest day in American military history, when Marr led a charge on Bloody Lane. He was injured when he fell from his horse. General McClellan's report said the horse had been shot, but there were rumors that Marr had simply been drunk. The Union ultimately drove the Confederates back at Antietam, but not before suffering a staggering 12,400 casualties. When McClellan declined to pursue Robert E. Lee back into Virginia, Abraham Lincoln relieved him of duty. The worst day for the Irish Brigade came three months later at Fredericksburg, the most lopsided defeat of the war. Marr's report to the Union command said that he had brought 1,200 men into the battle, and the next morning, only 280 Irish remained. Injured and undermanned, Marr petitioned the army to return to New York in order to replenish the Irish Brigade, but was denied the opportunity. So he resigned his post, and although he was later brought back in to command a different unit in Georgia and then another in Ohio, his wartime heroics were largely over. So too was the war itself. Thomas Francis Marr had distinguished himself over the course of it in several ways. Not only had he bravely, and perhaps drunkenly, led his forces into battle, but it was his writing and oratory that had convinced so many Irish to join in and fight for the Union. Thomas Francis Marr had become a staunch abolitionist, a radical Republican, and argued passionately to his Irish brethren that it was their duty to fight for the country which had taken them in during the hunger, and that they couldn't expect their own freedom as a people if they weren't similarly willing to fight for the freedom of others. He also gave the Irish immigrants another, less poetic reason to join the fight, but we will get back to that later. Oh, those pinned grenades are starting to add up, aren't they? Luckily, they're all attached to the same fuse. Because of his important part in winning the war for the Union and the championing of the Republican cause, Thomas Francis Marr was given a post-war appointment as Territorial Secretary to the Montana Territory, which marked the fourth act of his life and the second one in America. Take that, F. Scott Fitzgerald! The Constant is brought to you by HelloFresh. With HelloFresh, you get fresh, pre-portioned ingredients and seasonal recipes delivered right to your doorstep. Skip trips to the grocery store and count on HelloFresh to make home cooking easy, fun, and affordable. 
That is why it is America's number one meal kit. The holidays can be hectic, but HelloFresh helps keep things simple with recipes that cut back on meal prep and cleanup so you can spend less time in the kitchen and more quality time with friends and family. And HelloFresh Market has the season's entertaining covered. Having family over? Try out the holiday cheese and charcuterie board. Or skinny dipped dark chocolate peppermint almonds. Look, there's no question that HelloFresh makes cooking easier and faster and that it helps provide variety to your meals. But if you're a regular listener, you may know that I have been trying to learn to cook better and HelloFresh is also great for that. Their easy step-by-step instructions and diversity of options mean it's easy for me to draw lessons about other things I might want to try down the line when I get a bit more confidence. Go to HelloFresh.com slash TheConstant14 and use code TheConstant14 for up to 14 free meals and three gifts. That is a ridiculously good deal. Again, that's HelloFresh.com slash TheConstant14 and use code TheConstant14, no spaces or underscores, for up to 14 free meals and three free gifts. HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. Donating money to help people can be a wonderful and selfless act, but how can you feel confident that your donations are improving or saving lives effectively? You could do weeks of research to find the charities that are out there, what programs they run, how effective those programs are, and how the charity might use your money, or you could visit GiveWell.org. There you'll get a short, vetted list of the best charities they've found at saving or improving lives per dollar. GiveWell spends over 20,000 hours each year researching charitable organizations and only recommends a few of the highest impact, evidence-backed charities they've found. Over 50,000 donors have used GiveWell to donate more than $750 million. Rigorous evidence suggests that these donations will save tens of thousands of lives and improve the lives of millions more. And here's the best part. GiveWell is free. GiveWell wants to empower as many donors as possible to make informed decisions about their donations. They publish all of their research and recommendations on their site for free, no sign-up required. They allocate your tax-deductible donation to the charity you choose without taking a cut. Heather and I use GiveWell to contribute to the Malaria Consortium's Chemo Prevention Program. For every $7 donated, a child can be given crucial preventative care, and GiveWell estimates that a life is saved every $4,500 donated. That's why I use GiveWell, and you should too. If you've never donated to GiveWell's recommended charities before, you can have your donation matched up to $250 before the end of the year or as long as matching funds last. To claim your match, go to GiveWell.org and pick Podcast and enter The Constant at checkout. Make sure they know that you heard about GiveWell.org from The Constant to get your donation matched. With a fancy new title and the optimistic belief that he might have finally found a suitable home for his Irish people, Thomas Francis Marr struck out for Montana on July 17, 1865. What he found there was a more difficult situation than he'd anticipated. For starters, most of the population of Montana turned out to be Democrats, ex-Confederates, and Confederate sympathizers who controlled the territorial legislature and, in a lot of ways, the whole area. The only Republican presence was the Territorial Council, a frightening vigilante squad, the Territorial Governor, and now the Secretary, 
Thomas Marr himself. That governor was Sidney Edgerton, who not long after Marr arrived revealed another problem and a plan. The territory was running out of money, it wasn't receiving enough tax revenue, and Edgerton himself was paying out of pocket to try to keep Montana going. He wanted to go east to try to persuade wealthy New Yorkers and Washingtonians to invest in the territory to bring it back into fiscal solvency. But if he left the territory without leadership, the Confederates might take over. Luckily, now that Marr was on the scene, Edgerton had a proposed solution. He would name Marr acting governor while he went to gather funds. Edgerton left in September, a month after Marr had arrived, just in time to learn that he was to act as a Republican bulwark until Edgerton returned. He never did. Edgerton was unable to secure financing, and so he just stayed east. He settled back down in Ohio and let Marr take control of a sprawling territory he had only just set eyes on. This was all the tip of the troublesome iceberg for now Governor Thomas Francis Marr. The Confederates hated him because he'd fought for the Union and because he advocated for the voting rights of black men in the territory. The Native Sioux and Cheyenne people hated him because, well, duh. But the Republicans weren't on his side for long either. When the gold rush hit Montana in 1863, there was very little in the way of public order or law. In the fall of that year alone, highwaymen were said to have killed more than 100 people on the Bozeman Road. In response to this lawless violence, Governor Edgerton's nephew, Wilbur Fisk Sanders, and the editor of the Montana Post, Thomas Dimsdale, joined up to form the Montana Vigilantes. In the first six weeks of 1864, the Montana Vigilantes rounded up more than 20 members of an infamous highway gang called the Innocents and hung them without trial. When Marr accidentally ended up governor of the territory, most of what passed for its justice system was just lynchings. Still, from Marr's perspective, at least the lynchers were led by Republicans. Unfortunately, the particular Republicans they were led by didn't care much for Marr either. William F. Sanders was a nativist who resented Catholics and immigrants and feared that Marr was going to form a papist school system to corrupt the Protestant youth of the territory. Thomas Dimsdale, on the other hand, was an immigrant himself, an English one, and he really had a bone to pick with the former young Irelander. Oh look, we're finally ready to get back to all those things we said we would. Let's list them, shall we? There were two young Irelanders who escaped to Europe before they could be tried. There were the other young Irelanders who were transported to and escaped from Tasmania. And there was the other reason Marr gave his Irish-American brethren to fight in the Civil War. As I said, all of these were one and the same. The two men who escaped prosecution for the 1848 rebellion were James Stevens and John O'Mahony, who we talked about back during the Fool Killer series. After a few years in Paris, they split up, with Stevens returning to Dublin to found the Irish Republican Brotherhood and O'Mahony traveling to America to form the Fenian Brotherhood. The Fenian Brotherhood was a secret society of Irishmen, the American counterpart to the Republicans. Their mission was to form an Irish-American army to invade Canada in hopes that they could take the country hostage and barter it for a free Ireland. Some of the other young Irelander escapees, Terence McManus, Patrick Donahue, came to America to serve as Fenian officers. 
In order to conquer Canada, however, O'Mahony and the rest knew that the Irish immigrants would need training and battlefield experience, which they got fighting in the Civil War. While Mar was never formally attached to the Fenians, at least as far as we know, he not that subtly did insinuate that gaining experience for the coming Canadian War was a good reason for Irish immigrants to join up for the Union. Since we talked a good bit about the Fenians back in the Fool Killer series, I'll just give the top-line results here. They didn't conquer Canada. The biggest problem for the Secret Brotherhood was that nobody in the Brotherhood could keep a secret, and so most of their plans were foiled before they could come to pass, or else sabotaged mid-execution. But they did do some serious damage, for a short while seizing a major Canadian fort, setting off some bombs, and executing a high-profile traitor to the cause. One, Thomas Darcy McGee, Canadian Minister of Agriculture and one of Mars' fellow Tasmanian escapees. The English Dimsdale hated the Fenians and suspected, probably not incorrectly, that Marr was in some way a part of their ranks. That put two of the top Montana vigilantes against him. The third followed soon enough. In February of 1866, Marr crossed Judge Lyman Munson, both an actual justice and another vigilante when he granted a reprieve to a fellow Irishman named James Daniels, whom Munson had sentenced to death for murder with the help of a crooked jury of fellow vigilantes. Marr took a look at the case and determined that Daniels had acted in self-defense. He freed Daniels, who immediately ran from Virginia City to Helena for safety. But on his way, Judge Munson and his vigilantes caught Daniels, and, according to Munson, he was, quote, hanged with the pardon in his pocket. That is when the death threats started coming in. Marr was sent letters, drawings of his stick figure form being hanged from trees, and in August of 1866, a group of masked vigilantes cornered and attacked him on the road, warning him to leave the territory. The next summer, a number of white Montanans were killed in attacks by bands of Blackfeet warriors, including John Bozeman himself, and Thomas Francis Marr appealed to General Sherman to send additional arms for the Montana militia. Marr traveled himself by steamship to pick up the guns and ammo from Fort Benton, Montana. On the evening of July 1st, 1867, a sentry on board the ship said he saw a man in white clothing fall over the side and hit with a splash. When they searched the holds, they found Mar's cabin open and empty. He was never seen again. Oh, until maybe 1897, when Tom Dunbar pulled a petrified man out of the river. The Constant is brought to you by University of California, Irvine, Division of Continuing Education. Today's economy is highly competitive, and UCI DCE can prepare you to stand out. According to data from the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, continuing education correlates to higher income. It opens doors to networking opportunities, better job opportunities, and career progression. Not to mention that there's a strong argument to be made for self-betterment being the point of life. 
UCI DCE has been serving lifelong learners and skills development needs for the local, regional, and global community for over 50 years. They offer over 80 career-focused programs in business, leadership, tech, education, engineering, health sciences, law, finance, and more. Some programs can even prepare individuals to sit for industry certifications or provide continuing education credit towards recertification. Courses are offered on a quarterly basis and non-formal application is required to enroll. Learn from instructors who are practicing professionals with extensive relevant industry experience and gain practical skills that can be applied immediately on the job. At UCI DCE, enrollment is open to everyone. Go to ce.uci.edu slash learn now to learn now. Again, that's ce.uci.edu slash learn now or follow the link in the show notes. What interferes with your happiness? Is something preventing you from achieving your goals? BetterHelp assesses your needs to match you with your own licensed professional therapist, allowing you to start communicating in under 48 hours. You can schedule weekly video or phone sessions all without ever having to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room. It's not a crisis line or self-help, it's professional counseling in a safe, private, convenient online environment. They have licensed professional counselors specializing in depression, trauma, relationships, grief, and more. And since they're available worldwide, you can find the particular expertise you need online without limiting yourself to the counselors located near you. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling, and financial aid is available. Anything you share is confidential. BetterHelp is convenient, professional, and affordable. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com slash the constant. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp.com slash the constant. It's hard to think of two more popular settings than the American West and the American Civil War. Think of all the books, all the movies, all the documentaries. John Wayne, Clint Eastwood, the rumpus rooms with die-cast models of Gettysburg. Thomas Francis Marr was a key figure in both of those settings. And just for a little icing on top, he was also integral to the story of Irish independence. Hell, he delivered the Irish flag! Altogether, this means that a lot of people have spent a lot of time thinking, reading, and writing about the mysterious death or disappearance of Thomas Francis Marr. And since you'd have to write a P.O. box in Burbank, California to receive a full list of those who wanted him dead, there's plenty to think, read, and write about. There are three broad categories of explanation for what happened on July 1st, 1867, when Marr, or his body, went over the side of the steamship G.A. Thompson and into the Missouri River. Accident, suicide, or murder. The case for suicide is weakest, at least with what information survives down to us. Marr was in debt, had been sick for at least a little while, and according to some reports, he and his wife Elizabeth Marr, nay Townsend, a wealthy New York heiress whom he had taken up with after Catherine's death, were on the outs. There doesn't seem to be much reason to believe that, his sickness was nothing terminal, at least as far as he could have known, and his debts, while serious, had no reason to be particularly top of mind on a July evening across the wide Missouri. 
And aside from the heavy drinking he'd been engaging in his whole life, he had no noted signs of melancholy or mental illness. No, if there's a compelling argument to be made for Mars' suicide, it must come down to the stress he was under as governor, what with the vigilante threats against his life, the constant squabbling with indigenous tribes, and the general sense that he was the most hated man in the whole territory. But if Mars' gubernatorial career made him want to get on the glory train, he chose a very weird moment to punch his ticket. More on that in a second. First, let's get all Hercule Poirot on this motherfucker and talk about potential murderers. First of all, there's the roughly 20,000 white people, most of them ex-Confederates, remember, who lived in Montana at the time of Marr's death. Marr could have been assassinated just as Lincoln had been by some lost-cause Democrat, or he might have been killed by a member of any of the local indigenous tribes, Cheyenne, Blackfoot, or Sioux. Since Marr was, at the time of his death, on his way to pick up Sherman's guns for the purpose of fighting off the Blackfoot, they particularly might have had reason to snuff him out before that happened. However. If Mars' assassin was a Native American or a Democrat, they chose a very strange place to strike, on a guarded steamship just outside of Fort Benton. There would have been plenty of much simpler and safer ways to kill Mar on the road before, and there would have been plenty more once he disembarked the G.A. Thompson after. That he died near Fort Benton does elevate one murder theory, though. At the time he died, there were British soldiers stationed at Fort Benton, and a few days earlier, an American cavalryman had killed an English captain on board another steamship near the fort. Mars' death might have been retribution, turnabout. But, more compelling than the tit-for-tat, is why the English soldiers were at Fort Benton in the first place. They were investigating a possible secret attack against Canada that had been leaked, as their plans always were, by the Fenian Brotherhood. We need a dramatic stinger there. One more time. By the Fenian Brotherhood. So, okay, yeah, that's a pretty intriguing possibility. Although one might imagine that if the British caught Mar in a Fenian plot, they'd have had reason and the ability to apprehend him, make an example out of the old young Irelander, rather than throw him over the side of a ship. Definitely possible, though. The more intriguing possibilities relate to those Montana vigilantes, and I'd say they're the most likely culprits if indeed it was murder. Not only did they threaten to kill Marr on many occasions, but decades after his death in 1913, a man calling himself Pat Miller, whose real name may have been Frank Diamond, confessed to the crime. I killed him on a steamboat at Cow Island in the Missouri and threw him in the river. I swam ashore, said Miller slash Diamond. He said he'd been paid $4,000 by a vigilante called Axel Porter to do it. Sounds like a slam dunk, but for a few details. First of all, no clue who this Axel Porter was. Second, Miller slash Diamond also confessed to a suspicious number of other killings, many of which seem to have been false. In fact, he later recanted his confession about Marr. And there's no record to suggest that either a Pat Miller or a Frank Diamond had been in Montana at the time. Aside from the possible paid assassin, the most obvious vigilante suspect is the head of said vigilantes, Wilbur Fisk Sanders. Marr had, for some perplexing reason, spent most of the day before his death with Sanders. Sanders was the leader of the group that had been threatening Marr and despised his Catholicism. Sanders also had a more direct motive. He had designs on becoming a U.S. senator, which he later accomplished, and he might have had good reason to think that Marr would get in his way, either in his capacity as governor or if he too chose to run. 
That is where things get sticky, though, because unbeknownst to the rest of Montana, Marr's political career was already over. President Johnson had just named his replacement for territorial governor, Green Clay Smith, just weeks before the steamship incident. It's not clear who in Montana might have known this, but Marr certainly did, and had decided not just to avoid further political pursuits, but to retire to a quiet homestead with his wife. If this juicy piece of information had gotten to Sanders, say during the entire day the two spent together directly before Marr's death, it would have removed all reason for the assassination and most of the reason for suicide, too. So, maybe the whole thing was an accident. One young woman reported that she had seen Marr drinking with the boat's pilot and its captain in the salon room not long before he disappeared, and this gels with his history of alcoholism. He could easily have just taken a drunken stumble into the Missouri that evening. The sentry, who reported he saw him go over, reported that it happened near the toilets. That detail gives birth to another possibility. On his way to Fort Benton, Marr was struck by dysentery and had to stop in Sun River for six days to recover. He wasn't fully better when he got on board the G.A. Thompson, and so even without the alcohol, he could have been weak from the disease when he tried unsuccessfully to make his way to the head. If that isn't enough, there's one last related theory proposed in great if not convincing detail by Eric Lambrecht. That theory takes the drunken tumble one all the way around to its opposite. Maybe Marr wasn't drunk, maybe he had stopped drinking due to the dysentery, and after his long life of alcoholism, was seized by delirium tremens the evening of July 1st. Like I said, there is no shortage of options and a severe shortage of evidence. Just what drove General Marr into the Missouri that night has been a mystery since 1867, and there's every reason to believe it will remain one forever. I am certainly not going to solve it. So, instead, we'll set our sights on something simpler the petrified body pulled out of that same river in the same location 30 years later. To review. In 1897, the prospector Tom Dunbar discovered the body petrified as if cut from stone or molded from plaster, lying half buried in sand at the bottom of the Missouri River. He pulled it out of the silt by rope and then reburied it on dry land, hiding it until he could come back with a wagon for it a year and a half later. Tom Dunbar charged some unrecorded amount of money for a gander at his petrified man, which he displayed in Yellowstone once he managed to get it on wheels. He seems to have made a pretty penny this way and certainly attracted a lot of attention. Reporters came to investigate and interview him from all over Montana and all over the country, points as far as Chicago and New York. To prove the body was truly petrified, Tom Dunbar held a demonstration for reporters wherein he picked up a club and, quote, biffed it over the body with a resounding whack, according to the Bozeman Chronicle. In September of 1899, he sold his golden egg-laying goose to Arthur Wellington Miles. Arthur was the nephew of Nelson A. Miles, the commanding general of the United States Army at the time. Arthur had followed his uncle to Montana in 1880 to serve as Army Paymaster at Fort Coe, which became Miles City in 1887. Arthur Miles had opened a hardware business in 1882 and then teamed up with Colonel A.L. Babcock to form a hardware store chain called Babcock & Miles. 
He formed a land and investment company, built a theater and a hotel, a sheep ranch, a lumber mill, and was elected mayor of Livingston, Montana twice before he happened upon Dunbar's petrified man. Knowing a good moneymaker when he saw one, Miles purchased the statue-slash-body from Dunbar and set it outside his lumber yard, where it routinely brought in more than $60 a day from local looky-loos, about $2,000 in today's currency. Then Miles began taking it on tour all around Montana, including Butte, where the venerable and unnamed miner made his stunning identification. It is the general, God rest his soul, it is the general. It made perfect sense. Well, it made a perfect sort of sense. The petrified body was found almost precisely where Thomas Francis Mars had gone missing, and the hole in the statue's head and the bindings on the statue's hands lined up with any great number of theories about Mars' potentially violent demise. After the New York World ran a story relating the body to Mars, Miles and his associates went all in. From the turn of the year 1900 and onward, they would advertise what had been a merely miraculously preserved man as the miraculously preserved Thomas Francis Marr. The already popular exhibit became irresistible. It was at this point that Miles began entertaining grander ambitions for his 350-pound stone Marr. He planned a tour that would go well beyond Montana, through the West to Chicago, and then all the way to New York. The plan was temporarily imperiled as it crossed through Billings, Montana, and allegedly crossed paths with John Livereaton Johnston, a mountain man, legendary weirdo, and subject of the 1972 Robert Redford movie Jeremiah Johnson. Livereaton Johnston allegedly re-identified the petrified body as belonging to one Antelope Charlie. I say allegedly because I'm pretty sure that by the time Miles was towing the body east, Livereaton Johnston was dying at home in Santa Monica, California, and the article detailing his description of this Antelope Charlie is all kinds of suspicious, as most things about Livereaton Johnston are. At any rate, Johnston's story didn't get traction, and Arthur W. Miles continued his march east, hoping to make his fortune, well, his fourth or fifth fortune, at least, on the rocky back of General Thomas Francis Marr. When Marr's supposed remains reached Chicago, they landed with an appropriately stony thud. Nobody in the big city was much impressed by the craggy remains of the Civil War hero and Irish revolutionary. Arthur Miles didn't understand it. In Montana, people had traveled from miles around and lined up out the door to see the wonderful petrified man. In Chicago, they wouldn't so much as cross the street for him. The trend only seemed to worsen as his exhibition crossed the Midwest and into the East. In New York, people barely bothered to scoff at the stone man. When attention was paid, it was mostly hostile. Up until the tour began, General Marr's body had been a cash cow for miles. All he had to do was haul it into a town and people would throw money at him. But the tour of the East, from Chicago to New York, hadn't just failed to meet expectations. It had landed Arthur W. Miles deep in the red. What Miles didn't know, what he hadn't anticipated, is that everyone from Chicago to New York had already read these sorts of ads, heard these sorts of stories, had seen these types of stone men. A lot of them. It was all old news. Nobody between Chicago and New York cared much about the petrified body of General Marr because the market 
The whole eastern half of the country was already chock-a-block with blocks of men. That is next time on Men of Stone Part 2. Music for today's episode provided by Epidemic Sound. Special thanks go out to a whole bunch of wonderful folks. Keshiar Ranjbar, Martin Amander, Richard Castle, Angela Hines, Eric Anderson, Heikion, and everyone else who signed up to support this show financially last month. Wow, thank you all so much for saving the proverbial farm. If you would like to join them, go to patreon.com slash the constant to sign up and get access to the secret feed. If you can, tell a friend about the show or rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you listen, provided there's an option to. We're a proud part of Hub and Spoke Audio Collective, home to Open Source, a show about ideas, art, and politics. This week, Christopher Lydon talks to David Wendgrow about his new history of political creativity, co-authored with the late David Graeber. Listen at radioopensource.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, from Chicago, Illinois, where, no sir, we are not impressed by petrified Civil War generals, this has been The Constant. The Constant.